Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that isn't afraid to suck up to the teacher. Today we have Ambria, Zoe, and Laura. We're going to be having a great discussion today about the ongoing strikes in L.A. They are ongoing right now as we record. That might be different by the time this comes out in a week. We're going to be talking to labor reporter Sarah Jaffe, who just returned from covering the strikes in L.A., and two teachers from United Teachers Los Angeles, Lisa, who is a librarian teacher, and Mariko. Sarah, Lisa, Noriko, thank you so much for taking the time to come and tell us what's happening on the ground in Los Angeles. Woo! <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so I was thinking before we get too in-depth, uh, if we could have y'all start by introducing yourselves and say why it was important for you to be involved with this strike. And I guess we can start with Lisa. Okay, great. I'm Lisa Chibi, and I'm a teacher librarian in LAUSD. Um, I've been a teacher for about 15 years and a librarian for about eight years now. And uh, being involved with this, in the strike was, there was no um, question about it when we kind of started coming closer and closer to striking because of the um, the amount of corruption in the district and, and the unacceptable terms of, of what we see in the classroom. Um, class sizes, lack of librarians, and uh, support staff for our students. So it was an easy decision for me. Mm. How about you, Noriko? Hi, I'm Noriko Nakata, and I teach uh, eighth grade English at a middle school here in Los Angeles. Um, I've been teaching for over 20 years um, and have been a union activist for much of my career. So yeah, the the strike for me was a no-brainer as well. The conditions that um, public school teachers all over the country have been uh, working under completely unacceptable. So it was uh, awesome to be able to take a stand, to be able to speak to a lot of the issues that are going on and to finally have an audience for, for all of the things that educators are talking about. Amazing. And Sarah? Um, I'm Sarah Jaffe. I write about labor and this was the hottest thing in labor for quite a while now. So also, like on a just kind of personal note, I had a lot of stuff going on in my life last year and I didn't make it to any of the big strikes that happened last year. So from the minute that UTLA took a strike vote, I was like, I'm going mm. when that happens. So um, this was, it was an incredible experience to be on the ground for and I am very, very glad I went. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you all so much for being here. So you all kind of alluded to like before the strikes and when the strike came to a vote, what were the things that led up to that vote and what are the main demands of the strikes now? So leading up to the strike, wow, when was that strike authorization vote? I feel like it happened a really long time ago. The fall, right? August. Was yeah. It August? I, yeah, I feel like we came back to school and like in the first couple of weeks, we were doing a strike authorization vote. Um, oh. And and that was coming off of last spring where we had everyone basically re-sign up with the union because we knew that Janice was going to happen. Uh, the Supreme Court ruling that was going to make it, it was supposed to try to make it harder for unions to organize. Um, but Janice really actually, our union had the foresight to say, okay, let's make sure we 
have our union ready, strong and ready to go for the fall. And so this past spring, we were all, all the chapter chairs and all the members were having conversations about what does our union do for us and why is it important for us to re-sign up for the union and have them take our dues and fight for us. And so in spring, when we did all of that work, the fall strike authorization vote was so easy, mm. um, easy to, to talk to teachers about this because it was a conversation we'd already been having. Um, and so I think pretty, I mean, it was like a 98% strike authorization, which is so huge, hugely unifying for everyone to, to participate in. And then to hear those results was amazing. And then, you know, then began a wait. Okay, so we've, we've authorized this vote. What, when's this going to happen? You know, how are negotiations going? And it felt it felt like a really long wait after that. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it felt like a really long gap between voting and actually striking. And I think, I know for me personally and on our campus, it caused a lot of anxiety, confusion. Um, you know, and I learned a lot in that process about just the negotiation process in general. Um, and why it was taking so long. But I think overall the union um, did a good job of preparing us, even though some people seem to uh, be surprised (laughs) when it actually came and weren't quite prepared. But they had been preparing us for over a year for the possibility of a strike. And I think it became more realistic when the board appointed Austin Buettner as superintendent and... um, it just, it just felt like it was more intimate at that point over the summer. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that summation and say that Austin Butner's appointment and then Ref Rodriguez, who was our uh, school board president, resigned because he was involved in some pretty scandalous uh, behavior and he was a huge charter-supported member of the school board. Um, and so all of that started to further galvanize our union around the issues we're fighting for. So I was going to just go over those demands really quick. Um, they're pretty, they're pretty basic educational demands. We want smaller classes. We want a fair contract that makes our wages competitive with others in our region. Um, we want a school nurse on every campus mm-hmm. five days a week. We want a teacher librarian so our libraries are open and have someone who is uh, prepared to help uh, teach our students how to use those resources. Um, we want counselors. The, the ratio for school psychologists is the, the ratio they're fighting for is 750 to 1, meaning that they're serving over 2,000 students, our school psychologists. When I saw their signs at the, one of the marches, I was like, wait a second, what? They're fighting for 750 to 1? Um, And that was like, it was like ridiculously shocking for me to see. Um, So those are kind of, did I miss anything, Lisa? No, I think that covers everything. Uh, Most of the demands. I know there's also some uh, demands that don't quite fit as neatly. And I, and I have to admit, I'm not um, really on top of details for them, but other demands regarding uh, special education caseloads, um, and some things with adult education that I'm not that familiar with. I don't know if, you know, Sarah has anything on that from her, um, you know, being on the ground all week <laughs> with, with okay. other teachers and other, other units. But I think those are the majority of the demands that we're asking for. 
And then there's some other issues that have kind of come up that are really important to people um, in terms of the privatization issues, calling for a moratorium on charters. That's been, you know, a big issue that has been brought up during the strike. Um, but that's not part of like our bargaining demands because it's not part of the bargaining agreement. I would actually love if you could talk about how teachers work contracts are leveraged to improve schools overall. We see that and we've seen that a lot here in Chicago. I'm a student teacher right now um, and we've seen that with strikes in Chicago. Can you say a little bit more about that? I, I think uh, if I understand your question that, you know, I've seen, you know, memes and posters about how teacher conditions are student conditions. So you know, one way for us to advocate for students is uh, through our contract that regulates our working conditions and our uh, the expectations for a job, what we agree to. I think class size is a really good example of that. That is a point that we can negotiate in our contract. And obviously, being in a class of 45 students versus 25 students will greatly impact the student's learning experience and opportunity for success. So I think that's, you know, we're very aware that this, our strike, I believe, is very different than many of the other strikes that happened uh, earlier in the past year, year and a half, because it's not really that much about salary. And not to say that those other mm -hmm. strikes aren't as revolutionary, but ours is really about the points in the contract that really affect the working conditions and therefore the students' learning conditions. Um, I was just going to say that, you know, so much of the platforms that CTU and UTLA are on are driven by the idea of what students deserve. Um, the students deserve a small class size because that's where they're going to learn best and where their needs are going to be met. Um, students deserve to have a counselor, you know, that can help them complete college applications. They deserve to have a nurse if they're sick. I mean, what does it communicate to a kid to say, oh, I'm sorry, there's no nurse today uh, when they're not feeling well? Um, those are those are the issues that, to me, um, really resonate with teachers. They resonate with students and families. And which having that focus on the whole community and the whole learning system, um, I think, is what's helping drive the huge amount of support that this um, strike has right now. Yeah, I was going to follow up on that and just talk about, I spent a lot of time talking to parents and students who have been organizing in support of the strike, uh, particularly Friday morning. There were about 2,000 parents and students who organized a human chain down Colfax Avenue across three schools. And so many of these demands, like they not only resonate with the students and the parents, but some of them, you know, have originated with the students and parents. Um, the students have particularly talked about random searches in schools, the school policing, things like that, um, that when you incorporate those demands into collective bargaining, what people will call like bargaining for the common good, it really creates this positive sort of feedback loop with the community that the community has a vested interest now for the teachers to stay out until they get those demands met. And so the strike really becomes a strike that's not just of teachers, but it's parents and students who are joining these activities who are going to like Austin Butner's house at night or 
forming their own lines or showing up on, you know, Sunset Boulevard and waving signs and getting honks. It really involves the whole community. Mm. I'm glad you brought up sort of the more social justice issue and civil rights issue that are embedded also in these demands that we have. Um, Speaking as a librarian, I can say that students come to uh, my school, I work in a high school, and they don't know how to use a library. And before, like at the school where I'm at now, there is a local library within a few blocks from the school that, you know, high school students can walk to and access. But when I started teaching in East Los Angeles, there was no local library that students could walk to uh, w- within the community of the school. And so when you don't have a teacher librarian on campus, you're denying students access to information, access to information, um, not just for their academic needs, but for their personal needs, whether it be a book they want to read on the weekend, or if they want to read, um, you know, about an illness that somebody in their family has. And if they want to do that confidentially, if they you know, whatever information they need, we're denying them the access. So it's really a civil rights issue. Um, and that's an issue that came up in the in the Williams case, which was in the Bay Area, um, about access to textbooks. But we are, we're denying them access to relevant current um, information by not having librarians in our schools. Absolutely. Um, I was curious and, you know, Uh, about what was most inspiring about being part of this strike um, for the two of you as as teachers and educators and also Sarah like what was inspiring about going in as a journalist and seeing it kind of from the outside as well well what was inspiring to me from the outside was you know I knew about the demands before I left I knew some things about the history of this union and the recent reforms to it but watching the structure of what UTLA has built, like the first morning that I went to the first picket line on Monday morning, watching the chapter chair take attendance. And then when the crowd got bigger, take attendance again and make sure that they were recording in real time. Did everybody show up to the picket line today? How many parents and supporters do we have here? Um, Who is here? So that they could keep an eye, like right, you know, real time on what the mood is on the picket line. And again, we should note that it was raining like hell for Monday through Thursday. And so to keep an eye on that and say, are we strong? Is everybody showing up? Do we have support? Is there, are there people crossing the picket line? What's it look like at your school? That kind of structure was built out, you know, months in advance with chapter chairs and cluster leaders and all of these ways that they're not only sending information down to the schools, but getting it back up the chain so that everybody in leadership, everybody in bargaining knew what was going on at the different schools. That's awesome. Yeah, I was inspired by the amount of energy and passion, the unity um, at my campus um, was inspiring and the community. I just the way um, people stepped up, you know, uh, and not just parents and teachers, but my friends who have really no connection to the school district, they, they're not teachers, they're not parents of students, um, and really stepping up and supporting us through social media, bringing me waterproof boots, <laughs> which was a huge, huge <laughs> uh, kindness that people gave me, and um, bringing us coffee in the mornings and afternoons. It was just inspiring. And then to have the big rallies and see the amount of passion 
and talent and dedication to the issues uh, that were there. And I know that Sarah tweeted something at some point about uh, how the union really has everybody on point, but it's just really like, these are our day-to-day conditions. Mm -hmm. And this is, we really care about the students and we really care, we're tired of accepting these sort of shoddy conditions that the district imposes on us in our schools. And we've just had enough and we want people to listen. And that was inspiring to me. I think um, the biggest thing for me has, has been seeing my former students. So I teach middle school. I send my kids off to high schools all over the city. And at every action, I see different students who are, you know, chant leading at their sites. Mm-hmm. Um, they're with groups of other high school students and they're, they're fighting. And um, the, the feeling of ownership that our students have over the strike is really uh, inspiring, really powerful. Uh, the, week, the days leading up to the strike, the kids were, were really anxious as well. And like, when is this going to happen? And as the days went on, it was like, when are we going on strike? <laughs> and they were saying we, you know, it was, it was something that they felt like they were a part of. Uh, and that was pretty amazing. Absolutely. And I do say, I would say that like from a visual standpoint, that feels different than some of the other teacher strikes we had last year. Um, because, well, of course, like we know that the narrative of like nurturing and whatever comes into play when there are teacher strikes and people like kind of try to uh, twist it so that it's like, oh, you're actually like against the students by doing this. Um, and to see all these students out there in solidarity with the teachers. Um, and it, they definitely could have been there for these other teacher strikes too, but I do feel like it's definitely much more visually present this time. Um, I think that that at least has a really momentous feeling to it when I look through things um, to see all these students like really advocating alongside of these educators. Yeah. yeah, there's a group of organized students here called Students Deserve, and they have been on, you know, they have been part of this movement alongside with UTLA uh, for for months and months, um, helping get people aware of the issues. Um, that it's amazing to me every time a student or a teacher or a parent speaks to our points, like they know what the demands are. Um, they know them inside out. Uh, they live them every day. And you can hear it when they talk about it, that these are things that are really important to them. Yeah, I agree. I don't think the students had any um, doubt why we were striking and that we were doing it for them. And my campus was exceptional. I, I, I think there's a lot of campuses that were like that, but I know there were also some other campuses where, you know, it, it wasn't like this, but you know, we'd be on the outside of the fence. Everybody's inside on campus. Even the students who showed up, the administrators were, they're all cheering us on. And it, that was really, um, that also was inspiring in that sense that, you know, the appreciation that we're taking a stand to uh, make our school better. Yeah, just for having covered the strikes last year, although again, not having been on the ground for any of them, I can't say what it actually looked like there, but there is something about the depth of organizing that UTLA has been doing, right? That this is coming out of years and years of organizing in the community alongside students, alongside parents, alongside people who just think of the school as their community. And that, you know, it's, there's a a spontaneous feeling of connection 
to the school and to the teachers on strike. And when you look at the poll numbers that UTLA has, you know, the support for UTLA, that is people who have never been touched by this, this organizing. But there's also something real about years and years of remaking the union again as something that is really rooted in the community and that has these long-term connections with these student groups, with these community groups, um, that you see people willing to take risks. You know, when you have groups of parents going to Austin Butner's house, going to uh, Monica Garcia's house, who's the president of the school board, you know, they're taking risks. There were a bunch of cops there. There was a giant, like, mobile command station from the LAPD outside of Austin Butner's house. Like, it was not easy for parents to go knock on his door and say, we have demands. But the fact that they were willing to do that is there's a lot of trust and a lot of work that's been put into that. And I think... You know, I've been kind of grumpy about this all week, about people saying like, oh, this is just part of the wave that started in West Virginia. And I was like, there is, it is a wonderful thing to have momentum for public education and for for labor action. But to say this started in West Virginia is to really miss the work that people like Lisa and Noriko have been doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And to to miss out on Chicago's work. Yes. If it started anywhere, it started in Chicago. Yeah, well, there were Chicago teachers and there were Wisconsin teachers and there were New York teachers who came out to sell to, you know, join us in Massachusetts teachers. You know, there's been a whole reform movement in the the labor movement in general and within teachers unions in particular that has been, you know, communicating and and sharing strategies and, and testing out ideas. And that work is really, really important. I just have to say, I'm, I'm kind of new to a lot of this. <laughs> I'm proud to be part of it. And, you know, on my campus, I feel like I've, you know, been a strong advocate for students, but it's really people like Noriko who have been in the trenches organizing with UTLA mm-hmm. um, for decades that, you know, um, I'm, I continue to learn from and, and I'm grateful for that they've had that vision early on when I was a young teacher, <laughs> um, just kind of getting my bearings and uh, have been working on this for a long time. So just wanted to clarify that. I, that is very special and cute that you clarified that. <laughs> that is yeah. sweet. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> what has been the most challenging part of, um, I guess, all of this and just added on to answer as makes sense to your profession so Sarah can answer based on the most challenging part of reporting it and then uh, for y'all that have been involved in the union what's been the most challenging part about that um for me the most challenging part um, has been folks who really <laughs> who have who are a little late to the to the show I, I never I, last weekend I was at like soccer practice or something and someone was like so like what's going on with this strike? <laughs> And it's kind of like one of those microaggressions that you're like, I'm going to strangle you. <laughs> like, <laughs> what have you been doing? Um, I, I guess that has been one of the biggest frustrations for me is having to kind of start from ground zero with some people and say, oh, so yeah, we're going to be on strike next week. And this is what that means. This is what we're fighting for. Um, and I'm, I imagine that that's a frustration that lots of people uh, feel because there's lots of different levels of understanding of the struggle. Um but especially for those of us who've been living this really intensely for the last couple of months, that kind of question, you know, like, oh, are you are you really going to be on strike on Monday um, was probably <laughs> the, the hardest, <laughs> hardest one to wow. feel. Oh, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I think I felt that frustration more in the months leading up to it. As we were talking about earlier, we voted. They started talking about it in the spring, and then we voted, I think it was August when we got back to school. And then, like, every week, people are like, so how did the strike go? (laughs) And I'm like, it's it's not happening yet. Um, (laughs) Once these strike actually started, you know, I actually think the, the most challenging part for me is just sort of, you know, uh, personally coming home and like trying to let it go. Um, I think the first night I came home and I spent, you know, a good hour on social media trying to, I don't know, do something like somehow that was really going to affect, uh, be the, be the breaking point. (laughs) Um, and, and to be able to create, you know, personal space and take care of sort of myself to go back each day um, strong and ready and confident that, you know, in the end we will come out and have made some sort of progress. And, um, and I think by the day five, what was really exciting for me um, was feeling like we have started, we have ignited a change in this conversation. We um, hopefully are going to change the way people talk about public schools, public school teachers, and um, and people will maybe pay more attention to what's going on with our elected officials. Yeah, I also wanted to add, thank you, Lisa, for clarifying, like, before the strike and during the strike have been such different experiences. And um, the hardest thing has definitely been um, trying to keep... Uh, membership spirits up. Uh, everyone's really stressed out, and every uh, it's a very taxing to be on the line and then to go to a rally and then get back to the line. Um, and and life doesn't stop just because you're on strike. So people have you know older parents that they might be the care you know sole caregivers for. People have kids at home. They're trying to figure out what to do with kids who's who they don't feel comfortable having cross the line. Um, and having, you know, at every site, you have these unique stories of struggles that are happening in addition to the strike. And so understand, like getting a sense of the sacrifices that teachers are making or all UTLA members are making um, has been, uh, it's been tough to, to really listen to the members about everything that folks are feeling. It's a lot of stress and trying to, to help and support one another in that has probably been the hardest part. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we were talking uh, in that vein about how um, teachers have sort of been putting in a lot of work for a long time, not only in LA, but, you know, all across the nation. And these waves are happening, but there's been a lot that has led up to it. Um, why do you think so much of the recent wave of strikes has been teachers. You know, we've heard it over and over, like teachers here have struck, teachers there have struck. Why Why do you think teachers are the ones that are doing this? So again, if I can sort of say this from the outside, from somebody who's been watching it for a while, we had, I was trying to make like a really convoluted Star Wars metaphor the other day that I will spare all of you, but- <laughs> Please tell us, please tell no, us. No, it was, I was kind of like, okay, so the last yeah, like silly. however many yeah, decades silly. under um, successive Republican and Democratic presidents were kind of like the bad Star Wars prequels. Yes. Like it was just, you know, the build up to empire, but it was constant <laughs> teacher bashing for most of my life, right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. 
public schools are bad, public schools are bad, public schools are bad, teachers are failing, our schools are failing, blah, 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 to the point where we get George W. Bush in 2000, you know, running on mm-hmm. uh, No Child Left Behind, right, which was bipartisan policy, like Ted Kennedy co-wrote that damn thing. Um, and this was just, there was no real voice. And I remember interviewing Karen Lewis about this years ago on our first episode of Belabored actually. And she was like, you know, she's like, we tried to do better. They said, go get more certifications. We went and got more certifications. They said, you know, work harder, do more with less, all of this stuff. And teachers did that. And finally they're just, you know, there's only so much you can do when you've got 40 students in a class and you are, you know, Lisa was telling me the other day and she can talk about it plenty moving from school to school. So you're at a different work site every day of the week because nobody gets a librarian full time. Um, (laughs) All of these things you run into that. And then I think the other part of it is that teachers in public schools really are the, have become the first line of defense against austerity that, you know, that is a really ideological attempt to dismantle the entire public sector. So people who want charter schools basically don't believe that anything should be provided by the public for, for everyone. And so teachers are saying like, not just like we're sick of being beaten on, but also we believe in this thing. We believe in public education, public space, public, you know, the public as a concept, we believe in society. Um, And so to see that, you know, all over the place, whatever the demands are, and I want to go forth on the record and say, I think it is absolutely 100% fine for workers always to demand more for themselves, Mm -hmm. and particularly for teachers who have been getting cutbacks Mm -hmm. for years and years and years. But to see this as a, a real defense of you know, of political space for the working class, of social space for the working class, of social provision as a whole. Yeah. 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 I would also add that, like, it's a lot of really pissed off women. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, teachers are, I mean, it's women dominated profession. Yeah. I was realizing when I was in a different space this weekend that had a lot of men in it that I was like, whoa, this feels really <laughs> different. <laughs> and, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think Trump did really politicize a lot of women who maybe hadn't been particularly politicized before. And I think, I think these strikes do show, okay, we're going to put our feet on the ground and we're going to get out in the street and we're going to say what we think. Um, And I do think that there, there is something about the current political climate where we, where women have just had enough. Yeah. Yeah. I I would, you know, to add to all of that, I would also say, I think we generally, underestimate teachers you know mm-hmm. we have been trained and um, have studied how to organize how to create arguments and build evidence um you know we're trained to deal with such a librarian you know this is this is what we do and and people just often see us as childcare workers and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. It, it's you know and I think as we see more and more of that that widening gap between uh, the upper class and and lower classes and sort of the erasure of middle class, which middle teachers are very much part of that, or uh, teachers are very much part of that middle class, and that being taken away and eroded through. We even see that in higher education with you know the rise in number of adjuncts, mm-hmm. this lack of ability to 
make a living um, in this type of job. Mm -hmm. And also knowing that when we stand up for our union, for our jobs, we're strengthening other unions and other people to have that same right to be able to demand justice in, in, in their jobs and careers. So um, I think teachers know all that and we're, we're trained to organize. And so um, it, it's natural for us to go out and speak up. And we, and we work with students, people who cannot speak for themselves. It's our job to advocate for them. That's part of our job. Absolutely. Um, we have a teacher in training here on the call. <laughs> Uh, Ambria, uh, one of our amazing co-hosts, uh, is in like her final end of, of her master's program. And so I think, you know, it's what we were also curious about is what made, you know, for the two of you that are teachers, what made you go into education? Um, I, this is Noriko and I came into teaching, um, I came down to LA and they were like, I didn't have a credential. They were doing this class size reduction thing and they were like, Oh, you have, you have a bachelor's degree. Come on down to LA. They actually I graduated in Portland, Oregon, and they were recruiting in Portland, recruiting teachers, mm. come on down to LA and you can teach. And I was like, all right, sign me up. And so, uh, I, I had already thought I would want to teach. Um, and then once I started, it, it really is, such a rewarding profession. Um, there's nothing I've thought about, okay, I could do something else, but there's nothing that feeds me the way I'm working with young people does. Beautiful. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I feel like my story's a little bit funny and I kind of fell into teaching. Uh, I had originally moved to Los Angeles as a video editor and be became very jaded with, um, with that industry and um, working on a lot of reality TV. And I was looking for, and I had a, my, my bachelor's degrees in uh, English literature. So somebody suggested I, I try subbing because I had to figure out what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, I needed to pay my bills and, and LAUSD, uh, at the time they had a very short lived program to recruit teachers uh, from outside the teaching profession because there was a shortage. Um, so rather than getting hired as a sub six months later, I was teaching in East Los Angeles. And, um, and then you're kind of, you know, sink or swim until you're like, okay, this is, this is what I'm doing. And that passion grows. So I, I kind of, you know, um, I kind of fell into it and it's one of the best things that happened to me. And then moving into librarianship is where I really feel like, um, I'm, I'm, I found my calling. I'm where I'm mm. supposed to be. So very I'm good. very lucky. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, Ambria, well, what are you going to teach? Um, I originally was getting my certification for K through eight and was going to teach younger kids, but I decided I wanted to teach middle school. Um, so I'll be teaching uh, middle school social studies and ELA, hopefully. Um, it kind of depends on what I get offered, of course, when I apply for jobs. Um, but uh, I'm actually really excited because I'm going into my second student teaching placement. I have to do a full year. And um, I will be teaching eighth grade social studies, and we will actually be doing our um, 
Reparations One curriculum, which is the new curriculum that was one in Chicago um, to talk about police torture that happened here in Chicago. Um, so wow. CPS, thanks to activists, is now requiring that that be taught in middle school. It's really not happening in every junior high anyway, um, even though it's required now. So I'm really excited to get to be a part of that. That's awesome. Yeah, Amber, I wish you had been my social studies teacher. I still can be. (laughs) That's true. I love middle school. I think you'll absolutely love it. Yeah, I taught um, sixth graders in my previous placement, and it was pretty amazing. I I have to say I do miss the, you know, really explicit affection you get from the little kids, but um, the, like, the sort of heartfelt letters you get from the older kids kind of balances it all out. They're very intelligent by the time they get to sixth grade. So I had, I like never really taught, but I worked briefly for a nonprofit where we did these one day workshops in schools. And like the thing that really struck me about middle school kids was the girls. It's like just a little bit older and suddenly girls get really quiet and self-conscious. But when they're like 12 and 13, they just like, they don't care. Yes. And I was just like, oh, my God, these kids are amazing. And then, like, you know, a year later, you see the same kid and they're, like, suddenly afraid to speak in public. And I was like, what do we do to girls in this period of time? And how do we how do we undo it so that they don't become like, you know, anyway. So my teachers are a superhero. Sarah, you have to come back and meet my uh, book club. Uh, Hi. Yes, please. Yeah, I'm coming, too. (laughs) I don't want to get too into the teaching weeds, but (laughs) I think like one thing that's really great is just being really explicit, like especially if you've been teaching girls and boys and you're teaching them about feminism and about women's rights and being really explicit about like, hey, when I see a lot of girls being quiet, this really reflects things I've read about how girls stop, stop speaking up at this particular age. And I'm just, you know, I'm wondering how you're connected to this. And I was teaching fifth grade girls science in my last placement, actually. Yeah. And there was like a few days in a row where the girls had just like stopped participating in our class discussions. And I was like, I just kind of looked around during one discussion. I'm like, wow, I noticed that a lot of boys have been talking. I really want the girls to be part of this conversation, too. So I'm going to wait for some girls to raise their hands and then just kind of let it be quiet for a while. And then like four girls raised their hands and we were back in action. Back in action. Yeah. Just the basic, like I, I always do boy, girl, boy, girl. I never tell them that I'm doing it, but I will <laughs> never call on two boys in a row. I, I admit I sometimes call on two girls in a row, but, um, <laughs> yes. but doing just something as simple as that, you really, it does make you keep track of like whose voices are being heard in the classroom. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. So I guess back to talking about the classroom <laughs> transition. Um, so what would be the ideal outcomes uh, for y'all coming out of the strikes? Um, I hope we get all of our demands and more. Um, I was actually, I was talking to some of my students about this though. They're like, so Ms. Nakata, if they lower class size immediately, uh, does that mean we're not going to have you anymore? And I was like, oh yeah, that will kind of be awful, but (laughs) you'll have a smaller class. Um, so I hope that they can make some of the the class size changes happen pretty quickly. It is, it's really tough to have 200 papers to grade every time you make an assignment. Um, 
So class size, I hope, really does take the priority. And I hope, like, the offers that LAUSD has been making have all been temporary. Like, for one year, we'll give every school one more teacher. So I'm hoping that um, all of those can be, you know, permanent, long-term solutions uh, to the funding crisis. And and centrally funding things like the... uh counselors and psychologists, librarians and nurses, that frees up schools to use their discretionary funds for programming, maybe additional teachers, other things that students need to have a good educational experience. Uh, Maybe books for the library, because just because you get a librarian doesn't mean you get a budget for new books for the library, but, uh, you know, or whatever it is, new textbooks or supplies for the teachers in their classrooms or a new technology. So just having that will also free up um, other funds for schools to use to benefit their students in a, in, a, in a discretionary way. So I think that's important too in our in our demands. And then I hope that, you know, in addition to getting all our demands, that this continues the conversation. I know Uh, Noriko mentioned earlier about charter schools, and that's not something directly that we negotiate in our contract, but hopefully the public will be more aware and will hold their elected board members accountable to better regulating charter schools and making sure that we're not losing funds and resources to these private charters and supporting affiliated charters in our community schools. Awesome. Um, so Lisa, I have to ask you this because I would be mm-hmm. remiss if I didn't. Um, <laughs> I saw Sarah's photo of your sign, which referenced Buffy, which I'm obsessed yes. with. Um, yes. And <laughs> so I guess I just want to know, like, if you could talk about Buffy and being a librarian. <laughs> Wait, well, what did the sign say? You know, I, I wish my story was, you know, I was inspired by Buffy and Giles to go into school librarianship. (laughs) Um, You know, I actually became a Buffy fan late in life when I was uh, working on uh, Masters in Fine Arts and Poetry Mm -hmm. and um, and actually have a, a chapbook that is a series of poems called Love Lessons from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So Amazing. I do have a little obsession with Buffy, with Buffy and um, do have an obsession with Buffy. And um, I just, you know, I think she's really an inspiring feminist superhero. I think one of the things, you know, like one of the things I love about Buffy is, you know, she had all this power. And then in the end, she finds a way to empower everybody else. It's not mm-hmm. like I'm just going to be a leader. And, um, and, you know, working the teamwork with the, with, you know, um, everybody else, you know, um, there in, you know, in her little circle. Yes. And um, I just, you know, and, I, and it's a fun show, I think. And there's that whole mythology of, of the Slayer and how she was created and going back and finding that history and uncovering that power and reclaiming it and also discarding like, you know, you, you made the slayer because you were afraid uh, to battle these demons on your own. And now we're going to face those demons. We're going to incorporate them and I'm going to share that power. And it's a really powerful mythology. That's probably more of an answer than you wanted. No, honestly, (laughs) you could talk about it forever. It's perfect. Uh, We've, 
we've been planning to do a whole episode on Buffy, so it was not more of an answer than we wanted. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, you know, she's, it's definitely something that I, that I uh, have, you know, uh, dealt with a lot and, and thought a lot about. And so, so I was ready, you know, because I would watch all the episodes when I was, you know, taking breaks from my work for my uh, MFA and they kind of merged into something so it's awesome wait so what did this buffy sign say it said uh without a teacher librarian how would buffy have saved the world yes. oh that's really good <laughs> yeah <laughs> and for those who are not familiar exemplary teacher librarian i don't know if i ever saw him actually teach anything in the show but <laughs> <laughs> he, he taught them very them. important research skills yeah yes. Exactly. Giles doesn't need an explanation. He's like, just from episode one on, like, uh, just just throw down that massive book. It was amazing. (laughs) Anyway, I'm obsessed. Thank you for sharing. (laughs) Okay, are we ready to go into some final thoughts here? Yeah. Um, So how, how could people get involved to help like is there anything in particular that would be able to support the teachers who are on strike slash anything else that you want people to know um i would say if you are anywhere local find a find one of the schools in your area that might not be getting as much support you know my school lisa's school a lot of schools in my area my daughter's school they all have really strong lines and a lot of people giving them support but there's a school um that's kind of on the way between my school and my daughter's school that needs more support on the line um, so you can reach out to those schools that might need that. Um, but I also think nationally, learn about what's going on at your local school. You know, find out from, you know, make, don't, don't make your students, I mean, don't make your teachers go on strike and take it to the street before you learn about what's going on in public education. Um, go, a lot of people use the internet and they see school, test scores and they use that to kind of make it, oh, that's not a very good school. Their scores are really bad, but that's just one very small piece of the story that our public schools tell. And there have been years and years and years of the narrative that Sarah mentioned that our public schools are failing. And, and I'll tell you, every school has amazing teachers and every school has amazing things going on. Yes. Uh, we just don't know about them. So take some time, get to know your local uh, community school, ask those folks what they need um, and how you can support them. And it'll make the system stronger. And a plug for um, Chicago, actually, uh, this made me, what you said made me think of it. I'm the co-chair of the Public Education Working Group uh, for Chicago DSA, um, and we meet once a month, and we have some really exciting stuff going on. We've recently had our local school councils campaign, so we have some people on local school councils now, and we are hoping to do a campaign around Aramark, which is the company that CPS has outsource cleaning and food services too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have exciting stuff coming up. So if you live in Chicago, you should get in touch and come to one of our meetings. Yeah, I would add to that, um, you know, all, I, everything that uh, was said is is absolutely true, that sort of really get to know your schools, what's going on there. But also pay attention to elections, school board elections, mm-hmm. I think is something most of us don't think about. You know, I have to admit, if I weren't a teacher and probably be 
you know, when I was, before I was a teacher, it's not something I felt informed about, but inform yourself, go and find out who's running and all the budgets and how money is spent is public information. And we need to be better about holding those elected officials accountable to how they're spending our money. And I think uh, if, if we are able to do that, and I hope that is something that we will continue to do in Los Angeles, because these issues, even with a good contract, these issues are not going to disappear. We need to stay informed and and stay on our board members to do the right thing and to support educational justice in our city. Awesome. Yeah, I think the upcoming school board election in LA is going to be very interesting after this strike. Um, we were kind of wondering if it was going to last that long. Um, and I just totally self-serving of me, but also like support your local labor journalists because yes. let me tell you, not that many people were covering this strike. Mm. Yeah. Still not that many people are covering this strike. And it was, sort of, I had to do some arm twisting and some whatevering to get some funding to actually go cover it. So, um, you know, thank you guys for having us on the podcast to talk about it um, and for continuing to cover things like this. And, you know, this is how people change the world is, is finding the places they have leverage and uh, applying it. Hell yeah. It's yeah. not even self-serving. It's serving all of the good things. So you just happen to be doing that good work. Yes, thank you for coming out to cover it because the yes, the stories have not been written and if you didn't write it, no one would be. Yes. Exactly. And many of the, the stories you. you know before we took to the streets was uh you know is our local you know paper just would uh regurgitate what the district would put out which is often misinformation. And so I'm so grateful for Sarah and other journalists who came into Los Angeles and uh, started the discussion about what our real demands were. So, and are. Hell yeah. Yes. Just a bunch of us like all uplifting each other. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. Um, Is there anything else that any of you wanted to add before we close out? Send your kids to public school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Demand librarians. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, and we really appreciated hearing all of your voices. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for tuning in to Season of the Bitch. And if you can't get enough of us, follow us on Twitter at season of the B, or you can email us uh, season of the B at gmail.com. If you uh, and your bandmates are not dudes and you make music and you want to send us some music to play on our podcast, we'd love to hear it. You can send that to our email. Ooh. We would also love it if you send us money. So uh, if you go to Patreon, it's this amazing platform where you can send people money. Um, Yeah, go there and uh, give us money so we can keep making this podcast that we love to make. Yes. And I think I said... (laughs) (laughs) I think I said everything that needs to be said except for I love you guys. Bye. Oh, love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.